Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, November 27, 2018. Oh my God, this year is almost over. Can you believe it? I know some are going to be really glad to see 2018 go because it really sucked for them. Others are going to be sorry to see it go because it may have been the best year of their lives. But for most of us, I think somehow it kind of fell somewhere in the middle. Some good, some bad, some indifferent. But you know what? When the going gets tough, what did the tough do? We go dancing! So everybody, come on, get up and shake your booty to this song. Woohoo! That's going to set the tone for the rest of this episode.
<laughs> to me, that's like the, one, the like, best part of that song. Ow! Dun, 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 dun. Okay, we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You just heard Black Box with their big hit, Everybody, Everybody, from their Dreamland album in 1990. And maybe you might be wondering, why did Michelle say that this dance tune, Everybody, Everybody, is going to set the tone for the episode? Well, let's hear the next, our next song that our guest artist this week picked to open this episode and see if you can find the connection. Ha <laughs> ha! Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Barbara Streisand, as if you couldn't tell. <laughs> and the song was called Everybody Says Don't from her Back to Broadway album back in 1993. So, if you're wondering what the connection is between the two songs, wait no further. All is about to be revealed because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa.
everybody. Welcome to Fish Out of Hogwarts. Guest artist of the week. woo As we continue our countdown to episode 101, I am sitting here with the fantastic storyteller and producer. Please welcome Jude Trader-Wolf. I'm excited to be here. I'm a fan. Oh, that's so sweet. That's so sweet. I'm a fan of yours, too. <laughs> so I ask everybody this question when we begin our chat together. How and where did we meet? I met you, Michelle, at Word Up Community Bookshop. Mm-hmm. Is that where you yes. do the you do the Word Up show? Yes, the no name at Word Up shows with uh, my co-conspirator in story crimes, Eric Vetter. I curate and uh, co-host the storytelling shows. Okay, so I got booked on your storytelling show, and we met on New York City Storytelling Facebook page. And um, and I had a great time, and I was just so thrilled to be after reading of, or seeing of that 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 show was out there for such a long time. It was it was fun to be in it. And I think there were some other people, storytellers of note on the bill that evening. I think Harmon Leon and Susan Ken for sure. Those two, um, I remember those two, and uh, being very excited that that uh, they were in this lineup. I'm so happy that I get to do the storytelling show at Word Up because there, there's not much up there at all. And why should storytelling all be downtown? You're 1,000% correct. Anyway, enough about that. <laughs> Let's get back to you. So are you from the East Coast originally? I am not. Because I know you're not a native New Yorker. I, <laughs> do you know that from the way I talk? Um, no, I just know that because I know you a little bit. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I thought maybe I still have my, my Midwestern Oh, um, yeah, are you from, so you're from the friendly Midwest. Yes, I am. From where? I'm from Wisconsin. Oh, wait, wait. Wisconsin. Is Milwaukee in most Correct. Oh, Laverne and Shirley. Yes, House Laverne. Laverne Incorporated. Yes. My favorite show when I was a kid. Oh, my God. And Laverne, where did she have that New York accent? She's from the Bronx. Penny, Penny Marshall. I know, but the character was from Milwaukee. Well, she, you know, it's the 1970s. Yes. <laughs> it was just so funny to me hearing that they were from Milwaukee when I watched that show. Yeah. But I, yeah. So that's where I grew up in the heart of Wisconsin. Well, what town? It's a little town called Berlin. And before World War II, it was called Berlin. But then they changed the accent, kind of like Superman putting his glasses on so you won't recognize it. Oh, my they God. Changed. Is that for real? That is totally for real. Yeah, it was Berlin. And then after World War II, they said, well, we'll put the accent on the first syllable, and no one will notice that we're just like that city in Germany. Oh, my God. Yeah. But I always thought that that part of the Midwest, the northern Midwest, had a very heavy northern European Scandinavian concentration of of uh, people. Absolutely. Right? A lot of Polish people. Yeah. A lot of German people. Yeah. But right? still the shame of Berlin. I guess. Oh, you know what? I... I guess I don't get it because I'm not of that generation. So uh, to me, it seems ridiculous. But I still think it's ridiculous. And I remember learning about it as a kid and thinking it was funny. Yeah, but you weren't a grown-up then. No, no. Like maybe to someone like your parents or your grandparents, it it, it, they it meant it was like a uh, it was a thing. It was a thing. It was a thing. Yeah. So what was it like growing up in a town like that? How far were you from Milwaukee again? Couple hours, two hours, oh, okay. about 100 miles. Okay, okay. So we're 90 miles from Madison, but culturally and spiritually and psychologically, we were 1,000 miles from both of those cities because they were and are very progressive cities. They were very involved in social change. There was lots of um, 
there was lots of anti-Vietnam War stuff going on in both of those cities. There was lots of uh, um, civil rights stuff going on. So were they what we would call now blue states back then when you were growing up? Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. However, the small towns, these small towns, especially before the Internet or anything, you know, we would get three stations on television, the, ma the big major stations. Right, this is before cable. The 60s into the 70s. And... Um, so, so information was filtered through lots of religious, you know, re religious people, religious thinking, and in in our town and all the small farm towns around, a very different world, a world apart from the cities. Were your were your family farmers? Yes. Wow. Well, and um, what what ethnicity did you have back going back to when the people, the first ones from wherever they came from, came here? About 80% Polish and about 20% German. So, wow, w were your parents dairy farmers? Well, they... Because I always think of cheese. I mean, that's the stereotype. Well, we had cows. We were not the big-time dairy farmers. We had cows for us, you know, to supply milk for us. We were farmers in terms of growing crops, growing corn, strawberries, um, we, melons. Wow. We grew all of our food. We grew everything we ate pretty much in the summer. We grew it. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I ever met anybody before who grew up on a working farm. Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. And I was afraid of everything on the farm. And everybody else, all my siblings. How many? How many siblings did you have? Seven siblings. Well, and where were you? In, in I'm the, the third order. from the bottom. Okay. But I am afraid of everything. I'm afraid of the chickens. And my brothers used to tease me by tossing chickens at me. They would literally pick up a chicken and throw it like a baseball. They would just throw it. They would throw a chicken at me. And now I'm afraid of chickens. And I don't know which came they first. They would throw a chicken at you? They would throw chickens at me. Did that hurt the chicken? The chickens would scream and squawk, but they would do that anyway. Oh, my God. I think the chickens were a little... They, I mean, the farmer mentality is not kind in many ways to animals. But I was afraid, I liked the cows, but I was also afraid of them. Um, I was afraid of heights. I was afraid of the big machines and the loud noises. I was this extremely um, girl in a dress wanting to be on stage, oh. playing piano and singing and not um, climbing up the haymow. And so I, I was afraid of everything and I didn't quite ever feel like I belonged. So you were the creative the, the outlier. Because it, it, my parents loved that I was good at music because I started studying music when I was six. Was, was creativity encouraged when you were growing up? Learning was encouraged and music was required. But I happened to be very good at music. And Did your parents play or sing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, my so, dad so, so your, your family was musical? Yes. But it had to be in church. Ah. Oh, okay. So when I started, yeah, so I loved playing and... What um, kind of church? Catholic. Wow, guitar in Catholic church? Well, later on, but I didn't. I played org. I was a church organist at age twelve. Wow. Yeah, not my not my favorite thing, but I was. I I got paid a dollar a mass. Wow. <laughs> I made money. That's cool. <laughs> did Did they make you put it in the collection dish? No, I actually did get to use it for shopping. Why only church? What about rock and roll and Elvis and and yeah, that's from the devil. I mean, we did in 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 high school. I remember playing the piano for Jesus Christ Superstar, and my mother walked out. Wow. 
She, she pro protested my performance. And, but that was so, it was very upsetting. Wow. So who would, who, who would the devil rock and roll stars when, when you were a kid? Would it have been like the Rolling Stones All and the, the Who? The invasion, the British invasion. Oh, okay. So like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who? All of the above. Or, or were you like a little later with, with Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath? It's all of them. All of them. But the Beatles were the start, because I remember the nuns, I was very young, but I remember the nuns saying, this is an actual invasion. And only looking back, I realized they were interpreting what was called the British invasion, because the music was so popular. They interpreted that as a literal mm. invasion, and that the communists were behind it. You could tell people anything. You I'm could sorry. tell people anything in my town. Was it kind of like a American graffiti type of childhood? Meaning that we rode around? Yeah. Yeah. That was a popular pastime because there was nothing to do for teens. Were you able to do music in high school? Or in school, like in grammar yes. school and junior? Okay, so in, you, in high school, I did lots of music. And I did lots of music that, that my parents considered profane and wrong, and I just did it. I just did it. In fact, I was in a rock band, but the name of the band was Faith. Oh, okay. Well, that's a trick. <laughs> and we played all, we played real, this is the other weird rule that my parents had, was I could play non-Christian, not, 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 Christian's not the right word, non-Catholic music if I was getting paid, because that would somehow make it okay in God's eyes in some way, <laughs> in some weird, like, like twisted logic that they had. So with this band, we would get booked for post-proms and proms around these farm towns around, and I would make 50 bucks, and they were happy with that. Wow. Did any performers of note come to your town? Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich was this famous percussionist who once played with our high school band. Oh, he was wow. like on Johnny Carson and stuff. Was he from that area, maybe? I don't know. I just remember the Berlin Journal, which was our weekly paper, had this massive wow. two-page article about this guy. And wow. he played the drums with our high school band. So did you do music along with your parents and siblings? Did you all play music together in the house when you were growing up? No, I, not really. I played. Okay. Um, my... My uh, sister and I would sometimes try to do things together. No one was serious about music the way I was. Mm, got it. Yeah. I, I ended up getting a degree in music. I'm going to guess that college was your great escape. Well, it took me four years after high school, for lots of complicated reasons, to realize that I could actually go to college and that I was going to have to really just defy my parents' wants because they did not want me to go to college. What was their reasoning? They wanted me to be a, a nun. They wanted you to be a nun? They don't just want me to be a nun. They demanded that I be a nun. But isn't it up to you whether or not you want to be a nun? I think so. Well, it ended up being up to me. Well, but I had to get very strong, and I wasn't, for a few years. I had to get really strong to say, this is never going to... It was like breaking up with a, somebody who says, someday you'll come around, that I said, I'm never going to follow... I'm, not, I'm out. And my name, my name, Jude, Right. my mother would always say, well, she's very dramatic, and my mother would say, we had a very frightening tragedy, and I prayed to St. Jude to resolve it, and I told St. Jude that if this situation got resolved, that I would dedicate my next child to him. I never was told what this tragedy was, and you this, still don't know to this day? I still do not know. That was always a mystery, so it had to be something that my mother just wouldn't talk about. And she was 
But I was the next child, and I was named for St. Jude, the patron saint of impossible situations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was truly dedicated to St. Jude. She basically said, this is a child that... And I was supposed to be this religious figure. Except? <laughs> I Yeah, I, I, I thought I wanted it until seventh grade when I realized I... I I wanted sex and shopping. Wow. So we, so were you the rebellious one? I was very rebellious. Yeah? Yeah. Wow. But they also sent three of my brothers to the seminary, so it wasn't just me. They were determined to get somebody from their family to be a religious figure, and none of them took the bait. So college was your way out of being driven to a convent and left there? <laughs> But it took you a few years after you graduated high school to figure that out. Yeah, to get the strength to say that I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow my own path. Now, how were you, were you still doing music during this time period? I was a church organist. I sang for weddings every single weekend. So I wasn't only doing that. I was a secretary, and I was you know, trying to figure out what to do with my life. But so I did music all along. So you're like 20 years old and you're supporting yourself partially as a musician and partially as a regular office worker, which probably made your parents really happy. That's right. I mean, I moved out, got an apartment in this other town, Oshkosh. It's a famous town. I've heard of that town. Yeah, everybody knows Oshkosh. Oshkosh Bagosh. Exactly. And that town has a university in it. So I lived a few miles from the university and I would, I remember driving past, down the street past the dorms when school was, would start in September, and I would be crying and crying, and I would think, oh, I will never be here because I can never belong with these people. Oh, I will never belong with them. That longing. Oh, my God. And I couldn't see how I could ever belong with them. But I couldn't go back and belong to the world my parents wanted me to be in. But I couldn't make the complete break that it would have meant if I had gone to school until I was a little older. And, and it had to be when I found the right thing because I didn't know... There was such a thing as music therapy. I knew I wanted to study music, and I was terrified to study music. How would I ever make a living? I couldn't picture it. I had no vision of it. Mm. I had no vision of how that would work. And one night, I'm up all night because I had insomnia all the time, so like between 20 and 22, and I saw a commercial where a woman was playing the piano and a girl who was like a Helen Keller type of um, kid, deaf and blind, had her hands on the piano and was humming along with the piano, which meant the vibrations of the piano got in her body. And she couldn't hear or see, but she could feel and sing. And she was so happy, this kid. She was actually singing along to the piano. And I said, that is magic. I want to do that. If there's a way for me to do that thing, then I will do that. I don't care what it takes. And within a few months, I found out that the university that I used to drive by had a, a, ma a major in music therapy, and that was what that woman was doing. And I just happened to catch that, that little thing on public television or something. That was St. Jude. <laughs> that was St. Jude saying, that this was, is your path. That was St. Jude. Because that gave me the strength. I said, that I, I'm, I'm afraid to just be a musician, musician. I'm afraid I'll fail. I can do this. I mm. know that I can do this. So you applied to the school and you got in. And I got in. And um, what I was going to say, well, how did your parents and family feel about that? But at this point, you're a fully functional, autonomous adult. So really, it, it didn't matter. It or mattered did it, or to me did emotionally, it. but it didn't matter to me in terms of that, oh, I'm seeking your support. No, because I had been supporting myself right since I was 18. I left. 
But it meant a lot. It did mean to me. What I, here's what I discovered. They came around, and I didn't know that that would happen. Once I committed to being in school, and I was now a fully, I was a student, and I um, was seriously studying music, and I would visit them, and I would say, I would play these pieces and sing these songs that I was working on. They actually got pretty excited, and my dad tells me, something he never told me before, that he always wanted to be a doctor, and that he loved the idea that I would be doing music in a medical world, a, med a music for healing. He had never heard of that, and he thought, how wonderful is that? This is a side of my dad I didn't know existed. So it's like your talent ended up like, almost like coinciding with his dream that was never realized. Exactly. Oh my God. But that wasn't, yeah, and I, I chose it wanting to, for myself, and then he said, how wonderful to have music when you're in the hospital. And I was surprised that they got behind it. They, my dad was getting sicker and sicker at the time. My whole years of college, he was dying. I didn't realize that he was dying until he actually died, but he was sicker and sicker and sicker. So I would, I would bring my guitar to the hospital, and I'd play for him and made him happy. And I said, this is what I'm doing. This is it. This is my, this, I'm doing it with him and this is what I'm going to do. Did any of your other siblings go on to college? Yes, my brothers all went to college. My sisters, my sisters both started and never finished. My sisters could not get past all that internalized sexism. I really, that's what I really think. So after you graduated, what, what was the name of the school you went to? University of Wisconsin. First Oshkosh, then I transferred to Milwaukee because they had a much more expanded program there. Okay. So I got really brave. Oh, yeah. You moved to Milwaukee. <laughs> I'm going to the big city. buses and everything. Wow. Yeah. Well, so was that like a culture shock Oh, for my you? God, yes. I was a rube. Did you get your BFA from there? Yes, I did. And did you go on to get your master's? I did out here at Stony Brook University. So Later oh, on, much later on. Okay, so... Did you, is that when you moved east? Well, um, the two days after Christmas of my junior year of college, I fell in love with an Australian guy who became my lighthouse in my dark time of, am I going to finish this or am I, am I going to make it? I was so broke. He'd call me. When he'd get home from work, it would be 4 o'clock in the morning in Milwaukee. It would be 4 p.m. in Australia. He would call me and say, we belong together. And so when I graduated I went to Australia to be with him. Wow. How did you meet him? Was he a student at your school? He was a Christian friend of a Christian friend who came to Milwaukee for his break. He was a teacher. and So I, he was older? He was just a few years older. Oh, okay. Because remember, I was a late bloomer. Oh, that's true. Yeah, so you know, he was probably 28 or 29 years old. But he had a full, you know, productive professional life. And he, he had a friend in Milwaukee that he came for his, over their break. They don't work over that period between December and January. So he was, for his holiday, came to the Midwest. Where, where it, was it was cold. 20 feet of snow. <laughs> and it was unbelievable. So I, my, my friend said, we have a guy that's going to go cross-country skiing with us. And he's from Australia. And we need some extra people just to be befriend him. You know, to show him a good time in Milwaukee. So I went. And... Um, I thought he was very handsome. And then the next night we went to a movie. And then he called me after we went to the movie and said, meet me at this bar. And I met him at this bar called Von Trier's. And then we walked the streets. We walked along Lake Michigan. It's 20 degrees below zero for an hour. And then I fell in love. 
Of course you did. And I didn't feel a thing. It probably was like one of the most, one of the many magical nights of your memory. It absolutely was. And then, um, and, and we kept each other going for that year and a half. I go to Australia. And then things just, of course, of a long distance relationship are the, quite different when you close that distance. You know, we realized that we were meant to be very good friends. It was crazy. I was in love with him, but I knew I couldn't marry him. I came back, and I really kind of thought of everything. I had, the plan A was, I'll go to Australia, and it'll be wonderful, and I'll never, and I'll become a citizen of Australia, and, and that'll be it. My plan B was, if it doesn't work out, I'll do this internship in New Jersey, which will still be an adventure. And so that's what That I just did. seems to be the most unlikely place for adventure after Australia. What, 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 what was it in New Jersey? It was Essex County Hospital Center. It's, it, it's not really a thing anymore. It was a massive psychiatric hospital, uh, public hospital, that um, had a thousand patients, probably, and it had a huge creative arts therapy department. Ten music therapists, five art therapists, five dance therapists. It was a massive program. It was a wonderful thing to be a part of that was on its way out, but nobody knew that then. Right. So when you when it ended up not working out for you and the man yes. in Australia, that's what got you to the East Coast. That's what got me to the East Coast, and I always wanted to live in New York City. I really did want to live in New York City. So my best friend lived on West 73rd, so I spent a lot of weekends with how, her. How far was uh, where you were living in? What, what, what was the town you were living in? The name in of the town is... It's Vernon, New Jersey. It okay. was a good, it was maybe a 30-minute bus ride. So one of your friends had moved to New York. My very best friend, my roommate in college, had, was an actress, and she had moved ahead of me, you know, and, and was working actress in New York City. So I spent a lot of time hanging with her. She was doing it and, and got close to some big things, um, and it, it didn't end up happening for her. But I fell in love with New York City, and then eventually I got a job um, in on the Upper East Side, but in between there, I, I worked in Newark after my uh, internship. And that job in Newark was, the, was like being in the Peace Corps. That job paid $12,000 a year, which and was exactly what I owed in student loans. I and, thought that was a sign. And what year was that? That year was 1982. Wow. Yep. But because I stuck it out in that job, I got this fantastic job in the end of 1983 which was at Gracie Square Hospital on the Upper East Side, which was fantastic. And you stayed on the East Coast ever since? Yes, I've been here ever since. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So how many, um, so you've been a music therapist then for like 35 years? Yes, I have. Wow. And where have that taken you since then? Well, I worked as a full-time music therapist for about eight years. Then I got a social work degree so that I could do more things. You can charge insurance. You can do just more of an expansive degree. Mm -hmm. And I got away from doing music therapy as a clinical job. But I did always work with, um, I, I did songwriting with teens that had been abused because they didn't want to talk. So they would write a song. They'd write beat poetry and they would write lyrics and then we would set it to music. And I did that sort of thing as a social worker, but, I, but with my background as a music therapist. And I did private practice. But then I started performing more. Then I realized I really wanted to use music. I really longed to get back on stage. And so... As a musician? As a singer, mainly. So in the 90s, I, it started because I wrote a play because I was asked to, not because I thought I could. I had, again, I was afraid. <laughs> I guess fear is my... Uh, that's my touchstone in a way. But 
I had no vision that I could do this thing. But this colleague of mine said, we're starting a not-for-profit to deal with the AIDS epidemic. They were going to work with families of people with HIV and AIDS. And they wanted to use theater in some way as an AIDS education and awareness um, tool in some way. I said, great, I'll write something. I didn't know if I could. Well, accidentally, I wrote a full-length play. And we got a theater, a local theater, to produce the play, and then we put lyric songs in it, and it became a production. Wow. And I, I realized through just doing this because they asked me to do it and it kept expanding that I could do it. Um, and that's how I discovered that I loved writing material, first to put in other people's heads and mouths, and then I, we had this cast that we needed to keep the cost down of this production, so I wrote a role for myself so that I didn't have to pay myself. Oh, my God, that's funny. <laughs> and, I did, and so one whole thing was a monologue written by me for this character that was part of the show, and I thought, I really like writing my own material. I'm going to do that from now on. Instead of writing a character, I would write um, monologues and perform them uh, in cabaret clubs. Oh, like Don't Tell Mama and stuff like Correct. that? And the, and the duplex? Yes. So you became a cabaret performer. Yes, I did. That is cool. Did you, underneath your name, Jude, Jude Trader? Yes. Well, were you Wolf then? I'm, I'm assuming Wolf was your married name? I was, I was married by then and all that, yeah. And I, I Danny Skylight Room, the duplex. I don't think I, yeah, um, remember Rose's turn? I've heard of that, yes. And there was another room of that so-called Marie's Crisis. Yes. Yes, yes. yes. All those clubs were big in the 90s and, and early 2000s. They were the thing. I know a little bit about the cabaret scene and, at that time. Oh, wow. We could have been in close proximity and, and not known it. We could have. We could have. Because that's the world where you could put a show up. Mm -hmm. That was what was available. So to write a show and find a spot to do it, you could do it and then promote it. And and I did, oh, I did all right. And the thing is, I wanted to do fantastic. And I was never really quite satisfied with what I was creating. So I took a video of one of my shows, which was all different standards and Broadway shows on a theme, you know, songs on a theme. Mm -hmm. And it was called Love and Other Forms of Transportation. And it was all about love affairs. And I showed it to, it happened to be Julie Andrews' daughter, who was my acting teacher at the time. Her name is Emma, uh, Emma Watson, who lives on Long Island, where I live now. And her husband and herself were my acting teachers. And I said, I'll pay you, watch this video and tell me what's wrong with it. Why am I not satisfied with what I'm creating? People like it, but I'm not loving it, and I think I could do something so much better. So they watch it, and I met with them, and they said, well, you're, telling, you're doing a lot of stand-up material, and it's funny, but it isn't real. It's not about you, really. It's just funny. What if you talked about you? You're a therapist. You have a life. You've lived places. And mainly they were interested in saying, what is it like to be a therapist observing the world through that lens? And why don't you talk about you in a more authentic way? And I thought, well, I can't do that. That's boring. I don't know that. I was writing the stand-up-y stuff that I thought was, uh, was very funny and inventive. And I was really um, put, I was, I was challenged by them to rewrite the whole show. And then from that, I realized in a way, that was the early version of storytelling. That was right when, like, there was a period where cabaret was kind of going not as popular. Right. A lot of the clubs were closing. 
And when I told real stories about myself, I thought, I still can make them interesting. So this is the early aughts, maybe? This is about 2003, 2005, 2006. Right. And I... Um, I did a show called the Jew Treader Wolf Group Psychotherapy Show on Thursday nights at um, Rose's Turn down in the village. It was a weekly show, and I had a different stand-up comedian and a different uh, cabaret singer, and then I did this nun character that I did who was this angry conservative nun, kind of, I guess, kind of a getting back at my parents kind of character. She was an alcoholic who was very angry, and, and I could say things through her. You know, and then I would do um, my own uh, tell a story. Um, and at, in fact, Adam Wade was a, was my guest uh, comedian one time. Well, how did you know him? Did, is this around the time you discovered storytelling? Storytelling. And the it was still not a thing that I even knew about. I think I didn't discover it until uh, telling met Kevin Allison. But Adam was doing stand up then, and oh, I found I him through a, a network of of. He was probably doing storytelling too. Yes, because that's how I met him. Because we kind of came up at the moth around the same time. But it to- makes total sense. He used to do stand-up, and when I, I, he was a total stranger to me. And I'll never. I, it's just funny to me that he ended up, you know, becoming this rising star. He and is. And then our paths crossed later on. I mean, we're, I know him and I admire him. And uh, and uh, we were in a show at the Pit together recently. And I, I thought, wow. I said, do you remember when you were in my Jude Treader Wolf? Thursday night psychotherapy group show and we were everything was so different and he said yes of course I remember it was really fun oh my god that is the coolest thing but he was incredible I mean he was fantastic he was with the I knew then I saw what he has this heart and comedy Yeah, yeah 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 so how did you discover storytelling so from writing these pieces and doing these solo cabaret shows and and writing my own material and trying to be more honest I thought I need to, I need training in this, and so I took classes from Kevin Allison. Oh, the Story Studio. Yes, uh, at the Pit at that point. Oh, that's that's right. Before. He started at the Pit, and so Kevin was just really getting risk going. Yes, in two thousand nine. Yes, taking classes with Kevin was a game changer. In that, what way? I understood the power of the true story, and I understood more the art of it than I ever could have on my own, even reading about it or listening to other people, having that, um, th- the way he ran the classes, he's, one, he's such a good-hearted person, and the way he gave feedback made people feel safe, and, they, and, and people opened up, and I saw people grow, and I saw myself taking emotional risks through storytelling that I never did in cabaret. I never took those, I never did. I was aware of doors opening inside myself. That I, I, that I thought, oh no, as a performer, I'll keep that part to myself. And then I realized, that's my problem. That's why I'm not liking those shows so much. That's why I'm, that's why I'm not, I feel like I'm not hitting it because I was defensive. So what was the, would you say, was the tipping point to you realizing that what you told in your voice would be more interesting than what you told from a distance? The tipping point would be... Um, a story that I told in Kevin's class about an incident that had happened on the psych unit when I worked in Newark, which was a very scary, just fear is our theme song today, but it was a very threatening environment. It was, it was precarious, uncertain, and there was a very scary moment where a patient tried to kill a nurse. And I was at the center of this 
drama that where this patient attacked a nurse. And I told this story in this class for the first time ever with the full honesty that this patient had manipulated me in a way um, that I didn't know I was being manipulated, which was pretty much the, the thing that put this nurse in danger. And I was being fully honest and vulnerable. And a moment I don't, it wasn't that I felt that I wasn't trying to hurt anybody, but I, but I realized how naive I was in that experience. And I told that story. And, and afterward, the feedback that people gave me, people said, this is a world I never knew about. I never would have known what, what is it like to work in a place like that? Or what is it like to interact with patients that are struggling in those ways, because I had to really lay out what was those different um, stories I was dealing with with patients and so forth. And uh, that felt, I want that, I said, I want that feeling of connection to the audience. I turned actually that story into a, a solo show because I guess I'm a showboat. <laughs> <laughs> because you're I, going back to your cabaret roots. <laughs> that's right, and I wrote songs for it, and I did it in San Francisco. I did it in the San Francisco Fringe and the Chicago Fringe. Oh, fantastic! I did it a bunch of places um, here in the city too. I did it in Stony Brook University. I did it a bunch. And Kevin, um, uh, I don't want to say call it directed, but he helped me develop it. He coached me through it. That's fantastic. And he that's, mentored you. He mentored me. Ah, yeah, he's to, so awesome. He really is. Big and shout out to Kevin Allison. Love from love, the redhead. Yeah, from two redheads. Yes. So that was, I, and then I started um, pitching to different um, storytelling shows. The thing, I got more brave. And then all these different shows started popping up. Or maybe I was finally noticing them. Maybe they were there. Well, if you're talking about the early teens, that's when everything did start popping up because the moth blew up like in 2008-9. Well, that's exactly when it was because I did that solo show in 2012. Okay, so yeah, if you're talking about the early mid-teens, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I did, I mean, I went up at the moth a few times. I got really close to winning one time. Oh, so close. Oh, I know what it's like to come in second, trust me. Oh, <laughs> my God. So, yeah, but that is a good training. Yes. It's a good training in getting your story down yes. all that stuff. Yes. So I guess this would be a good place to say right. a little pescado says that you have a story to share for us. I do. All right. Um, well, the town that I grew up in, a little farm town in the heart of Wisconsin called Berlin, Wisconsin, has a main street that has stores and some car dealerships and uh, gas stations. And when I'm 16 years old, we get our, our, everybody gets their driver's license and we call each other up, our friends, and then we would say, do you want to ride around? because that's what we do for fun, is we ride up and down that main street and pick each other up and just talk and maybe get some beer. But we ride around and drink. But we ride around. That's what we do. You want to ride around? That's what we do for fun. There's really nothing in this town to do. And not that I would be allowed to do very many things anyway, because even though I go to a public high school, um, I'm, my family's very conservative, and... I'm educated according to the three R's, really, really religious, and that religion is Catholic. And it is a, my parents are part of a sect of Catholicism that will only go to a Latin mass, and I mean Latin, Latin. And instead of going to one of the many churches that are in town, on Sundays we put on these little house on the prairie dresses with necks, you know, with uh, collars that go up to our chin and go to the floor and drive two or three hours to some farmer's 
basement where our rogue priest says a mass in Latin and we do all the litanies and all the things and tells these people that, that we are the last remaining Catholics um, anywhere in the country and people come from all over the state to these, these rogue chur- churches in people's homes. And it isn't only just the religious piece that is very uh, um, a throwback to the past. They also believe the moon landing is a hoax the civil rights movement is a communist plot, and all the changes in the 60s are the dawning of the age of apocalypse. Now, the other thing that is, that is just part of the water I'm drinking in this church is the complete subjugation of women and a hatred of the Jews. This is just in all the conversations, in, and it's very political. It's if Alex Jones and Pat Robertson could create a conspiracy theory this w- these people would gobble it up. And I don't know what's true at this point when high school, because I go to a public high school, I see women, empowered women, I see real women, but I don't know any Jewish people. So I don't know any. I don't know if all the things, oh, the Jews own all the money and the Jews stop us from having what we want and they blame the Jews for everything. And I don't know what the truth is. And all my friends talk about what they're going to do after graduation. And to me, it's just blank. I don't have a vision of what I'm going to do because the only thing... My parents want me to do is be a nun, a conservative nun in this sect. Well, one day as we're riding back and forth, riding through town, riding around, we see something on the street that we've never seen before, which is a movie marquee. And a movie theater has come to our town, finally something to do, of course something I'll be forbidden to do, but something to do nonetheless. So there's a few movies that go by and I finally get up the courage, I lie to my parents and I say I'm going to town to do an errand and I go to the movies and the movie that I see is Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the Roof opens with a with a song called Tradition. The traditionalist movement that my parents were in, this is what they were called, the traditionalist movement of Catholicism and here's this this Jewish man, Tevya, singing this song about tradition and a beautiful chorus. I hate this word tradition. It's ruining my life and makes me feel like an outlier everywhere I go. But I love Tevya. I love this character. And he has three daughters. And one of them wants to choose her own spouse. And the other one falls in love with a dissident. She wants to go. She, he's, he's a revolutionary. And the third one falls in love with someone who's not even Jewish. And these people could not be more opposite than my world that I am from. And they are exactly like me, exactly like me. And I go back to that movie every single night. I sneak out of the house and I go back to that movie and I watch it and I'm in love with the music and I'm in love with Tevya. And there's a beautiful scene early in the uh, movie where they say the prayers um, uh, over the candles on Friday night, on the Sabbath night. And there's a a scene where there's that family, and then you see another family uh, in the same village on the screen, and then you see families all over the world doing the same prayers at the same time. And I think that's what my family always says about Catholicism, is that we're we're, we're the only religion that's the same all over the world. And I think, no, we're not. Look at these people. And it's so beautiful, and I'm so drawn in. So I sneak out to the next town over on one of my drives out of, through town. I keep going. I go to Oshkosh, and I buy the soundtrack for Fiddler on the Roof, and I bring it home, and I'm playing the soundtrack about this Jewish story in this anti-Semitic home. And the music is playing, 
and I'm waiting for the I'm waiting for something to happen for my parents to freak out and they don't and one day I'm walking past the barn where my dad is in the farm and I hear my dad singing tradition tradition and I think oh my god he likes the song he doesn't even know and I realize they don't even know this is a Jewish story and they don't even realize what happened to the Jews? They don't know anything. They don't know what they're talking about. And that was the beginning of realizing that this was all just, they were just repeating what they were being told and they actually didn't know what they were talking about because they, they love this music. And this music was just as relatable to them as any other songs that they ever heard in their life. And that was also the beginning of me realizing that I could, through the movies, I could find out about the world and I could find out about what happened to other people. And the next movie that I saw was Cabaret. And I went, snuck back and saw that movie every night for five nights and memorized every single song. And through that I said, there's a larger world out there and it's okay. My parents really don't um, believe half this stuff. They don't even know what they're talking about. And after that, the beginning of the, of, of my next, of, uh, of the next stage of my life was saying to my friends, instead of you want to ride around, would be, hey, do you want to go to the movies? Wow. Oh, my God. That is just such a tribute to the transformative power of music. That's right. He loved it. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And I can totally see why you've made this your life's work. <laughs> wow. Wow and wow. And speaking of your life's work, now you've segued into producing, and you've actually found a way to mash up <laughs> stories and songs together into a show. Yes. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I will. My friend and collaborator, Wells Hanley, who's a composer, and I hatched this idea from um, him and I writing songs for my solo shows based on stories that we would really love, that all stories in a way um, inspired us and we would listen to stories and say, I bet I could write a song that, uh, that would take that story and expand it in a way. And so we found some storytellers that we love and admire very much and listen to the story together and then talk about it. And uh, usually I write the lyrics and then he and I write a song together and he writes, does a complete arrangement for it. And then we find an artist to sing the song that matches the energy of the, of the, that's a good style and match, you know, because every song is unique. And we call it mashup because it's a mashup between stories and songs and these two worlds coming together. This has been one of the most enriching creative processes I've ever been involved with is to listen to something, let it land, and work with Wells, who is such a great musician, and create something that goes that takes this that, that that's a partner to the story and and we have a show on december 2nd at the duplex and full disclosure i am in it <laughs> <laughs> and it's so amazing that you're bringing this to the duplex where you have history yeah. so it's like jude comes full circle and um so the show will be at the duplex at four o'clock in the afternoon on sunday december 2nd and also in this show, along with moi, are Robin Beatty, Richard Cordillo, and Vernon Payne, yeah. all of whom are Fish Out of Agua alumni. Yeah. So if people want to get tickets 
for mashup stories into song or find out more about you, your work, and where you're performing, where can they find you? They can go to mashupstoriesintosong.com. That's a long .com. You can go to jewtraderwolf.com. You could go to, well, those are the best ones, jewtraderwolf.com and store, mashupstoriesintosong.com. Are you on Twitter and IG? I'm on Twitter, um, J-U, capital J-U, small U, capital T, small R, Wolf. Okay, well, like her on Twitter. Because you can. Yes. And, face, and Mashup Stories into Song has a Facebook page. You can like that page and then always see what's happening with it. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, Jude, this has been a really, really great chat that we've had. And there is a question that I ask everybody when we come to the end of our time together. If you had a word of advice or encouragement... For a young person who knows that they're the outlier and knows that there is something more inside them to offer the world than the constraints of their upbringing or their environment would have them believe that they can achieve, what would you tell this child? Two things. Well, one, trust that the things that you really are good at are what you're meant to do. If you're good at it and love doing it, you will find like-minded people And that's the most important thing is to find even one or two, wherever you are, like-minded people. And the other is, if you go to the movies, and I don't mean that just because of my story, movies or now we have the internet, but to look at people that inspire you, people who have also, that's where the storytelling world is so awesome. There are people always telling stories about overcoming their fear or overcoming the obstacle to the thing that they really want. And there is, in fact, research about that, that, Getting inspired and having a sense of awe that somebody overcame obstacles actually changes us and transforms us. I love how everybody has such a different take. Thanks for being on Fish Out of Agua, Jude. Thank you for having me. And hug on the air. Okay. We uh- always end with a hug on the air. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm nothing special, in fact, I'm a bit of a bore. If I tell a joke, you've probably heard it before. But I have a talent, a wonderful thing, cause everyone listens when I start to sing. I'm so grateful and proud. All I want is to sing it out loud So I say thank you for the music The songs I'm singing Thanks for all the joy they're bringing Who can live without it? I ask in all honesty What would life be Without a song That's what I think So
With Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You heard Thank You for the Music by ABBA for their, from their Thank You for the Music album in 1977, which was another one of Jude's picks and is kind of fitting for her story. Thank you for that music, Jude. Before we go, we have a couple of announcements. Today is Giving Tuesday, people, and we would love for you to donate to Radio Free Brooklyn. Support living artists in our mission to bring our freeform internet community radio shows to the world. It's so easy. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash donate. We are a 501c3 nonprofit community organization and each donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Again, that URL is RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash donate. And thank you so very much for your support. And we at Radio Free Brooklyn would like to invite you to our holiday party. Yes, save this date, Thursday, December 13th at the Brave and Brewing Company at 52 Harrison Place in Bushwick. There will be food specials, DJs, surprises, and more. Plus, with your RSVP, your first two beers are on the house. How cool is that? To RSVP, just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash holiday 2018. Well, kids, that's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Woohoo!